Talk Radio 570 KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends. KVI Want to Know Weekends. Get ready to raise a toast with Seattle's most spirited hour of talk. Happy Hour Radio, sponsored by Mary Hill Winery. Explore the best in Washington wines, beer, spirits, food, and more with your guide, Seattle sommelier, Christopher Chan. It's Happy Hour Radio, right now on Talk Radio 570 KVI. All right, welcome back to Happy Hour Radio. It's Saturday night in the city, Saturday night in Seattle, and welcome to Happy Hour Radio. I am your host, Christopher Chan, your advanced sommelier, your weekend wine guy, master mixologist, and commodore of cocktails. Hope uh, you're at home or on your way to uh, a great place for some libations or some good food or you're cooking something up, but uh, hopefully you have something in your glass. And uh, it's all about happy hour. We're talking about wine, spirits, cocktails, and more. And I've got uh, two great guests today. I'm so excited to have uh, David O'Reilly, the founder of Owen Rowe Winery, um, part Oregon, part Washington, and part uh, Ireland, I imagined. Um, but we've got David O'Reilly here on the show. And I also have um, one of our local cats. That's uh, Ronald Holden. He's an author. He's a writer. He's a bon vivant. He's uh, written a book most recently called Homegrown Seattle. And I know what you're thinking. That used to mean something else back in the day. But uh, Homegrown Seattle is all about 101 true tales of local food and drink. And when you want to go local, um, I want you all to uh, check out Restaurant Week. We are right in the middle of Restaurant Week. And uh, April 19th through the 23rd is the second week of Restaurant Week. SeattleRestaurantWeek.com has 165 great deals for you um, for lunch and for dinner it's 15 or 30 bucks your choice go in the day or go in the evening and have great food uh, and great wine and um, if you want to have some great wine you can check out Salties on April 29th uh, my friend David LeClaire SeattleUncorked.com has Sexy Syrah the big Syrah tasting over at Salties that's a food and wine event of course the wine will be red no one's making a, a white Syrah yet but it's Sexy Syrah at Salties Seattle Uncorked Dot com. And if you want to get out and about and enjoy a luncheon for charity, uh, check out the Celebrity Waiters Luncheon. I'll be there. It's uh, Friday, May 8th at the Fairmont Hotel. Um, it's a kick in the pants. Uh, it's costumes. It's fantastic food. It's uh, lots and lots to drink. It's taxis and dancing and um, singing and <laughs> who knows what goes on, but raising a lot of dough for the Millionaire Club here in Seattle. But right now, I want to talk about uh, homegrown Seattle. So author Ronald Holden, welcome to Happy Hour. Thank you for having me here. So excited. Um, I've known you for, gosh, about two decades now. And let's step back. Tell me about uh, your history and how you got into writing about food. I had known David Brewster back when he was the assignment editor at King Television. And eventually I succeeded him as he went on to a number of other ventures. And he ended up being the founder of Seattle Weekly, the paper we all know and love today, and that was really the first paper that talked about restaurants in a way that was not obsequiously fawning. There was a critical stance. And uh, the writers at Seattle Weekly uh, were bon vivants. We liked to go out to places like the old Brasserie Pittsburgh. We liked to... Uh, well, there wasn't much of a wine scene yet, but we did appreciate what there was. And that became the basis for uh, my involvement in food writing and restaurant criticism and restaurant history. 
So when I started to put together essays that would talk about what the origin stories of Seattle restaurants and Seattle institutions like Starbucks and Chateau Saint-Michel, that's where that came from, that, that I had been around since those early days. Well, this is um, really cool because they have um, some of our locals, and obviously Seattle in the Northwest has has been a, a mecca for people to, well, a business mecca and a culinary mecca and a wine mecca of some sorts, and that there's a lot of people coming from outside of our region in here. And so to have a a, a tome, a, a short tome, it's 260-some pages, but the 101 stories, I think, reflect a lot of our, uh, absolutely reflect our great history and the people who had visions and followed it and, and to see where they were then and where we are now, it's its really remarkable. It is not a magazine-style guidebook. It is not the 38 latest, hottest places to eat on the Internet. Uh, these are stories that are not going to change. Well, uh, you should hand that over to David so he can take a look at it, and uh, David O'Reilly will get a little uh, sense of, of uh, the history, the culinary history, the beverage history, the uh, right. beer history, and the spirits. Right. And um, Let's talk about um, Seattle Weekly, and that was the... the um the weekly magazine, the well, I'll call it the the journal. What's it called? It uh, was called an alternative weekly at the time. Uh, so because, because it wasn't the Chamber of Commerce, <laughs> and it's been supplanted by an even more stranger version. It is. Of it, that. it certainly has. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, uh, the weekly is is always been a resource for me, and I, I like that it's uh, free, of course, because mm-hmm. uh, you can pick it up, and it's always a good read. Um, so, how long were you there at the weekly? I was only there a couple of years. Uh, and then I went on to, I went into the corporate world and then I came out and I started my own company. And I started, I had a luxury travel company, took people to France for, um, to the vineyards of France well, over 15 years. Uh, that was called France in Your Glass. France in, in Your Glass. <laughs> yeah, I like that. And uh, I remember um, being so envious of your trips. And I think I was working at, uh, uh, the the Alexis Hotel and just been in the industry as part of the Chandra to Sir, which right. uh, I think we were both part of, and yes, I still am. And we... that's cool. Exactly. So um, the homegrown Seattle book um, to pick a hundred and one. How, <laughs> how did you pare down that list? Uh, well, I started with a spreadsheet that had about four hundred names on it, and I started writing, and and I sort of picked the low hanging fruit. Uh, <laughs> and, and and after I after I I had a 250 page book, I thought, well, that's a good start. I could keep going, and and I am keeping going, and we will have an updated edition later this year. But this came out last year with what was available then, and I thought, all right, let's just get this out there so that we have it. In case I get hit by the by a metro bus or something. Yeah. <laughs> well, heaven forbid those chances have, have lessened because there's a lot less <laughs> metro buses now. If mayor has his way, there'll be more. Well, good for us. So the 101 True Tales of Local Food and Drink, I like the fact that it really goes back about, well, shoot, 50 years with, if you look at the Canlis and the family and some of the Italian families and... You look at you look at something even like Starbucks that, that had a secret start in 1962. When a guy named Gordon Bowker, not Howard Schultz, Gordon Bowker, who had been a writer for the old Seattle magazine, was bumming around Europe and in Rome at a cafe near the Trevi Fountain, he ordered a cappuccino. 
and then he settled back to read the Rome Daily American and the news of the day. And when the waiter brought the cappuccino, he distractedly said, thank you. And then he tasted it, and that was the moment. That was Gordon Bowker's epiphany, his aha moment. Uh, and, and it was that this was really good, that coffee could be more than what fueled an overnighter, an all-nighter in college that was not Maxwell House. Juan Valdez. <laughs> it was. It was the. So Gordon made himself a little promise that day, that if he ever had the opportunity, that's what he wanted to do was drink coffee that was this good. And when he got back to Seattle and started working as a writer, he really became an evangelist for good coffee. Uh, now in Seattle, this month there's the the specialty coffee association of America bringing hundreds of people. It's a whole new industry. Coffee Fest, I remember that. Yeah. Silverman. Well, and the Razzle Dazzle is, of course, the, the barista competition. Uh, and the big, the big debate is still whether, whether, uh, whether you do real espresso or whether you do pods. Oh, God. And, and the purists all say, <laughs> oh, well, we must have pods, you know. And the revolutionaries are saying... No, no, no. Uh, the aristocrats are saying we must have real coffee, and the, the the revolutionaries are saying we have to have pods. The environmentalists are saying you guys are, <laughs> and the environmentalists are mad at everybody. And uh, but back to Gordon, and and Gordon realizes that he has to go all the way to Canada to buy coffee beans because there's there's nothing here in Seattle at the time. And and he was driving his he would round up money from people who would then say bring me back a pound bring me back a pound and he'd drive up to Murchie's and put all of these purchases into the back of his little Alfa Romeo, right. and and drive it back. So it wasn't uh, contraband back then. You could actually <laughs> it, was, transport. it was perfectly all right back then, <laughs> and and he and his roommates uh, ended up doing their own roasting. They said we can do this. We can do this in Seattle, and so they. They got themselves a little roasting plant, and they went down to Pete's in in California. They later bought the company, but uh, Pete Alfred Pete was a Dutchman who had worked for Twinings, and he had a little company that uh, in the Bay Area, and and slowly but surely they established uh, Seattle as a place for coffee. Uh, and there was a graphic designer uh, who did this sort of mermaid. Uh, with a tail. That was Terry Heckler who did that. And uh, I like that it had that the the siren had breasts. Well, I mean, yes, that was, in the beginning, the yeah. siren had had. had I mean, it, coffee's sexy. Nipples. <laughs> oh my goodness, <laughs> not nipples. Oh my goodness. And there was this idea, and I'm not entirely sure it's true that, that, that Mr. Starbuck in Moby Dick was a coffee lover. He was the first mate, so that's where the name came from. And uh, and they they sold beans and nothing but beans in the beginning, uh, and of course the naysayers immediately said, yeah, they're over roasted. It's too dark. <laughs> it's That's bitter. Right. It's Italian roast, not fr it's French roast. It, well, it was it was full city roast. They called it at the time, full and city. people did not understand it. No, uh, as as anyone who kind of breaks down a wall is going to find. Uh, and not just with coffee, you find it with, with wine, you find it with, with all kinds of food products. 
if you challenge the existing system, there's a whole raft of people who have so much invested yes. in the existing setup that they're not going to change that. But see, those are trends and not fads, and that's where trends uh, start with, right. with uh, yeah. cities and, and, uh, and moving up. And um, speaking with Ron Holden, author of Homegrown Seattle, it's 101 True Tales of Local Food and Drink, and uh, obviously Starbucks has about 9 or 10 pages, which is really cool. <laughs> it has a lot of pages. It has a lot of pages. <laughs> Let's talk about some of the other cool folks you've got in here. I know that um, just from uh, areas of the culinary uh, geography, you've got some you're talking about pizza, you're talking about wine, you're talking about breweries, you're talking right. about Italians and French. Um, let's go back. I've met Victor Rosalini. I went to school with his uh, nephew's kids, mm -hmm. uh, the Rosalinis in West Seattle, and uh, we have just a brief moment. But give me a little nugget about Victor Rosalini. Well, Victor came came out of Tacoma, but went down to San Francisco to learn how to be a restaurateur, which is not just being a chef. Uh, we have the feeling today that a chef is a restaurateur, which is not necessarily true. Uh, a chef knows how to cook food, but that's not, restaurants is so much more than that. Yeah, you said at a table, it's, it's a table setting, and you've it got is. all these um, different, uh, this ambiance, the atmosphere, and the people, and the noise, and the levels, there's so much more going on. When, when Victor came back to Seattle and opened his first restaurant, the 410, uh, there was a big sigh of relief that Seattle at last had a real restaurateur. And, and this happened at, at about the same time that the liquor laws were changed so that you could, you could order liquor by the drink in a licensed establishment. And the Candless family got started at, at almost exactly the same time. That's uh, It's ironic that we have these great families, these great traditions, and uh, we're going to take a short break. When we come back from the break, we're going to talk more about Victor Rosalini. Sure. Then I want to talk more about, um, just touch on the Canis family, and then give me one of your, your really cool stories that you included that, you know what, no one knows this. And and what I what I thought was really cool is that uh, um, uh, Sherry Weatherall and Barnaby Dorfman are my neighbors, and so I know them, and of course, the Charles and Roseanne Finkel and all that. But stick around, folks. Well, we've got uh, Ron Holden with Homegrown Seattle here on Happy Hour Radio. Breaking down the big stories, Len Beck, weekdays 9 to noon on Talk Radio 570 KVI. Now more KVI Want to Know Weekends. Back to Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. Hey, welcome back to Happy Hour Radio. We are uh, deep into homegrown, homegrown Seattle with Ron Holden, his 101 True Tales of Local Food and Drink. And um, I had the pleasure of uh, uh, reviewing this book, um, not critically, but really as a, uh, a measure of comfort. And um, if you want to know history, and I think history gives us uh, um, sort of a better perspective of who we are and where we are in our place and time. And this book really sort of capsules, uh, encapsulates... Um, enough history to give us a sense of place and a sense of, um, well, evolution. And so, Ron, we were talking about Victor Rosalini, and Victor was the uh, one of the best-known um, hospitality mans and also uh, known for his great cuisine. But uh, the restaurant 410, uh, was that on 4th Avenue? Yeah. Yeah, 4th Avenue and... Um, um, uh, 
I remember it, and I, I remember its demise as well. And, and restaurants have a life cycle. They do, and and Victor, what what distinguished Victor was his ability and understanding of of how to get people of different and differing political points of view yes. into the same room, maybe even at adjacent tables, and then not kill each other. Yeah. It's hospitality. And making it's hospitality. Feel, and then having decorum, but also feeling like, you know what, we can, we can enjoy ourselves. And that's what I think dining and whining is all about. I think also that, that if you come into a restaurant and there's the owner and this very patrician gentleman, tall and elegant, and the first thing he says to you, and he says it, I'm so glad you're here. I saved you a veal chop. Well, guess what you're going to order? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's the power of suggestion, and uh, exactly. you don't want to differ from them. Well, um, let's talk about, I noticed you wrote about the Canlis family. Give us a little history of the well, Canlis family. Well, the Canlis family. family actually starts, Canlis, originally written with a K. Uh, the forebear left the Greek island where he was born and swam over to Turkey uh, and then made his way uh, down to Cairo and while he was running the big hotel in Cairo, uh, who should turn up but the former president of the United States, Theodore Roosevelt, who wanted to go on safari and, and needed somebody to kind of manage that whole project. And it ended up being this canless forebear. So when Roosevelt came back to the States, he brought Mr. Canless with him uh, and... and um, after the war, Peter Cantless at that time uh, set up shop in Hawaii as a, as a what we would call today a quartermaster. He was the guy who knew where to find fresh eggs and things like that. Uh, and and then the the family ended up uh, in Seattle. The the Pan Am route, uh, the old Pan Am airline, Pan American flew from uh from Seattle to Hawaii and they would the pilots would bring fish in uh and drop it off at the restaurants <laughs> way before TSA <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh i guess you could only have a 3 ounce jellyfish if you brought something back <laughs> in a if, it was, if it was liquid <laughs> yeah too funny well um this homegrown seattle is really an amazing book to talk about some of the history and i what i really like about it too is that it, it uh, touches upon some of the great purveyors of the the cool ingredients that we have in our lives, the mushrooms and the cheeses and the breads and, the, the, of course, Pike Place Market and Victor Steinbrook. Exactly. Victor Steinbrook, who uh, was, was an architect and who had no specific relation to the market, except that he liked sketching and drawing and, and had pen and ink sketches of all of the scruffy denizens of the market. Uh, which which he published as the the market sketchbook, and the market sketchbook became the rallying point when uh, developers wanted to tear down yeah. the market. Uh, the, the market had never been designed by the Goodwin family originally. It was just a thing at the end of Bluff at the there. Uh, the idea that you, you would preserve that really became made worthwhile by Victor Steinbrook's book of sketches. Uh, and 
this was the mid-70s, and people were calling into question the whole issue of urban renewal, and we had an election, you know, that... that um, People didn't know what was what the result was going to be because the market itself was not seen as a big tourist attraction. Today it is. It's the single biggest tourist attraction in Seattle, of course. But back then it was one of those places that you kind of maybe wanted to avoid, like the corner yeah. <laughs> like the right. Third and Pine. Third and Pine, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Interesting about um, redevelopment and visions, and because Seattle is going through that uh, uh, redevelopment again. I mean, we've got cranes everywhere. That's right. And what you notice is that there's a homogeneity of all of these buildings. I'm looking like, oh my goodness, those are just not Seattle. This is just some developer's dream and to think if someone would have ruined the pike place market we would be like without it that would have changed what we believe i think the pike place market connects all of these citizens to the people across the cascades and the people who are out in the boats and just brings i mean it's the center point for uh, 300 miles and people may not shop there every single day but they they go at least once a year. Absolutely. They'll buy something, they'll show the market off to their friends when they're visiting town and they they love it. And the smells and the sights and the sounds and the and the characters. As you mentioned, there's still that's characters right. down there and that's that's part of our community. Um talking about the book, uh I know that you touch on wine and you talk on some su- you touch on sushi, uh restaurant builders, uh you know, I remember I used to play basketball with James Wyman and I coached as <laughs> you see uh, Eric Leadholm who was a fellow advanced sommelier and yes. um you've got uh, the hedges and the hatches and Roseanne Finkel. This is really an amazing How do we find this book? The book is on Amazon. That's the easiest thing. Uh, I have a little website that sells copies, but the very easiest way for anyone anywhere to do it is do a search for Homegrown Seattle on Amazon. It's there on Kindle. It's there in hardcover or not, not in print. Yeah, soft yeah. cover, and I, cover. I like that because um, it's easy to take around, and, and it's you know some of the hard cover you, you got to really sit down and be prepared in that chair to to sit. Down no, this is this is a this is a uh, uh, bathroom book. It's, <laughs> <laughs> oh no, don't say that. It's about food, and I never got that. You can't put your well, food put in, in the wine, kitchen. Put in food and wine magazine <laughs> in the commode. Well, Ron Holden, I want you to stick around because uh, we're going to taste some great wine with uh, uh, an Irishman, and I, I haven't had a chance to meet David O'Reilly, um, but. A few trade occasions, so I want to welcome him, uh, David O'Reilly. Welcome to Happy Hour. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's such a treat. I understand that uh, you were here in Seattle doing a trade tasting, and um, it's Saturday night, so you and I have a chance to get together and just talk about um, your history. Tell us how you got started and where you're from. So I grew up in uh, Belfast in uh, Northern Ireland, and so I lived there until I was 14 years old. And my um, introduction to wine was basically. Um, my father had uh, grown up bottling wine in Belfast. And so uh, the the fifth growth Bordeaux and Cru Beaujolais was shipped to Belfast in barrel. And he would bottle it in the 20s and 30s. And as a result, he had, he never drank beer. He didn't drink whiskey. He loved wine. And so it was served at our dinner table. And he really wanted us to appreciate great food along with wine, which is very unusual for an Irish family. Very unusual. And the first thing I think, did, did someone think he was a spy or something? <laughs> because he wasn't drinking Guinness or Harp or Jameson. 
No, that's right. And, uh, you know, of course, in, uh, you know, very sectarian uh, city you know, is Belfast. And so uh, people will always identify you by what you drink. Yes. So that is exactly right, Chris. That's what I thought. I said, that's very interesting. Well, um, what a, you know, that's somewhat like my um, grow up upbringing is that I've had uh, an exposure to great wine at a, a young age. And um, I've always said to people ask me how I got in. I said, once you try the best, you can figure out the rest. Absolutely. <laughs> and for me, it came about, you know, very uh, naturally, very organically. I loved growing things. For us, uh, our family traces its roots back to County Cavan in the Republic of Ireland. And uh, we, when I left in 1977, my aunts were still churning butter. And so it's a very backward part of uh, of uh, Europe in really all the great sense of, of that term. It was back to nature. And uh, we uh, visited uh, a, a few years ago with my two older daughters. My wife hadn't been to Ireland. And we visited a relative. He's a butcher. And he he presents himself, and he's got this bloody apron all the way down. <laughs> he's two big, two big butcher knives. At least he wasn't a dentist. That's <laughs> that would be, <laughs> or maybe even a winemaker. Oh yeah, yeah. and because I wouldn't trust winemakers with big knives, and uh, and so he, uh, you know, I was asking him, well, how far do you go to get your animals? And you know, he said, well, you know, I killed them all myself, and I said, well, it's obvious with all the blood on him, but he said he doesn't go any any further than about three miles. I love that. And so that's what I experienced growing up. And we would be sent down to what we call the home, the farm, and we would hay my aunt's fields and my, my relatives' uh, fields. And we would gather around at lunch and have these big pots of lamb stew with soda bread. And the butter was uh, a little thicker than the slice of bread. Oh, my. And I knew that this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to get back to Earth, back to uh, nature. I love it. Well, stick around. We're going to get back to, uh, after this break, back to Happy Hour Radio with David O'Reilly of Owen Rowe Wine. Lars Larson has the real story. Weekdays, 6 to 9 p.m., only on Talk Radio 570 KVI. Talk Radio 570 KVI Want to Know Weekends continue. Now back to Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. All right, we are homegrown in Seattle with uh, an Irishman in the studio. We got David O'Reilly with OwenRow.com and also also author Ron Holden, who uh, wrote the book, 101 True Tales of Local Food and Drink. It's called Homegrown Seattle. It's available on Amazon. And uh, uh, David, we were just chatting about your inspiration. Three miles uh, of, uh, you know, that was the, the kingdom of all thing, great things. The, absolutely. And, you know, it was that sense of, you know, going to, you know, if you wanted to get your 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 greens, you'd go to the green grocer. You would every every single aspect of what you ate, you know, could be traced. You you knew exactly who raised it and where it was grown. And so when and we... And this was in the... Th what years? This is uh, in... I left uh, in 1977. Ah. We, we left... Um, it was a tragedy. We lived in Belfast. There was a lot of violence at the time. And my father's uh, two brothers were murdered. And so he... I, I come from a large family. I have six brothers and five sisters. So I'm one of 12 children. And he said, 
we wow we will all get swept up in this violence. You got a he case did, of O'Reilly's. We have a full case. <laughs> That's right. And so um, we he emigrated, uh, took the whole family to Canada. And so we lived in the east coast of Canada and in the west coast. And he was teaching political science and decided to give it all up. And we we uh, moved to northern British Columbia, a little town hmm. called Bella Coola. And the Bella Coola River is one of the most prolific rivers for steelhead, cutthroat trout. It has some amazing salmon runs of coho and chum and and uh, and of course you know the big king salmon so we you know we lived in, in just in this pristine environment and uh, and you know if i needed any more inspiration to you know to you know really embrace an agrarian life that was it for me and so by the time i had graduated from high school i knew that this is what i wanted to do Wow. is to be a farmer. Wow, that's that's yeah. very interesting, and especially to to, to know that. Uh, well, you saw it early on, so it was natural. It wasn't right. this foreign pictures and weird smells. The city kids go, "Ooh, that's weird." It's it's normal. Oh no, no, the smell, the weird smells. Those were the fresh smells. Those are beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ron, I'm sure in your in your writings here in the Homegrown Seattle book, you've probably come across some uh, some interesting stories and smells about farmers and people. The same. Well, I remember the story of, of of a chef named Jeff Miller who was in San Francisco. Francisco and who had been working for Jeremiah Tower at Stars, ah. and he f- filled a backpack with seeds, seeds. Now he'd never farmed before. <laughs> Strapped that on, got on his Honda motorcycle, and drove up here. Wow! Found some property out by Snohomish and started farming. That's Willie Green's farm. Oh, look at that. How about Because Willie is his middle name. <laughs> all, became, all became from a backpack, kind of a yeah. Johnny Appleseed. Willie Appleseed was right. Him, yeah, Willie Greenseed. <laughs> well, um, David O'Reilly, how did you finally, I know you, did you find some great wine here in the Northwest? Because the Bordeaux's were not quite making it here at the time, but uh, they were actually a lot more, at least a lot less expensive than they are now. Absolutely. When, uh, when I decided to go to school, I studied uh, medieval philosophy at a uh, private school in Southern California, Thomas Aquinas College. And uh, it brought me close to some great vineyards. And uh, and while we were um, traveling, you know, back and forth between British Columbia and to Southern California, it would uh, take me through Washington State, Oregon, and uh, Northern California. And so, you know, obviously being exposed to wine and really enjoying flavor, that was my first taste, no pun intended, of uh, you know of American wine, I had never been exposed to uh, American wine, and I will never forget one of my first bottles of Washington State wine, and it was a it was a David Lake, eighty three Cabernet. Mm. And, I can see that blue and white label right and now. I, absolutely, old label. It cost me ten dollars. Ooh, you saved up, huh? And it was it was <laughs> magnificent. In fact, I had told my brother about this wine, and he he actually purchased several cases for his wedding. And years later, I had no idea that I would actually end up moving to Washington State. But I, you know, now get to work with those same grapes. In fact, I have one of those wines with me. 
from that original planting at Red Willow Vineyard that David had worked with. So fun. Speaking of another David, David O'Reilly here is the winemaker for Owen Rowe. And David, you started making wine in Oregon prior to Washington, though, right? I did. I, I started initially in the Central Coast in California. And for me, the Holy Grail was Pinot Noir. And and Pinot Noir was not necessarily really, you know, been made in a high quality manner in California. It was Napa Valley Pinot Noir, good, but probably not the best area for Pinot Noir. And so, you know, I came up to Oregon and... Uh, what year it, was that? That was in 1992. So I was already in the wine business in oh, California. Wow. I worked there for three years. And uh, and I came to El Cove in '92 and stayed there about six and a half years, and really, you know, grew very fond of the Willamette Valley and and the different. At that time, there was one AVA and it was the Willamette right. Valley, and then just exploring the different soil types within the valley. Well, did you tr- tr- uh, work with Adam then to help him? Or Adam was, was uh, in school, so okay. I worked with his parents. Oh, so yeah. fun! <laughs> How about that? Well, I had the pleasure of hanging out with them uh, um, a couple of years ago. Uh, very nice people. So your inspiration was California was Pinot Noir, which makes sense because that is one of those. Uh, um, We'll say ethereal grapes, the wines that we go, you know, the burgundies, et cetera. But um, the Oregon wines are fantastic. I've had those. But let's talk about your Washington project. Well, in uh, in 1999, I was uh, discussing, you know, kind of my my dream of making, you know, some great wines from the Pacific Northwest. And at the time, I was making some wines with my partner, Peter Rossback, from Shenan Winery. And we were getting fruit from Block One Vineyard, in which is now Shampoo, and also some old vine Zinfandel from some vines planted in 1880 in the Dalles in Oregon. And a friend of mine said, you know, you really like balanced wines. You like wines with acidity. Let me show you this vineyard in the Yakima Valley of Washington. And he brought me up and introduced me to Hugh Shields from uh, Dubrul. Yeah. yeah, you and well, Kathy. Hugh Shields took me around his vineyard, and it was in winter time in '98, and so the vines are dormant; they're little spin, spindly sticks on the on the uh, on the the trunks. And you know, two things kind of came to mind: either this was a great site because there wasn't a lot of growth, very rocky hillside, or else Hugh was an idiot and he didn't know what he was doing <laughs> and he didn't know how to so farm. So diverse. So I decided to uh, you know just take the risk. Uh, purchased some fruit from Hugh Shields, and really, the rest is history. Because I got to work with you know with these grapes that hung out in Yakima Valley, with you know incredible ripening, but with incredible acidity. Those uh, original wines that I made from under my Owen Rowe label in '99 will probably age another 20 years. Yeah, Dubrul is, um, I believe we were chatting with the Shields, and it's the only place in the world that you can grow five varieties, world-class varieties or world-class wines in one place. It's absolutely crazy. And that's what makes, you know, the Yakima Valley such a diverse growing area because you can do so many grape varieties so well. 
Well, that's uh, and, and you ran into the shields, or did you find them um, on uh, the internet? Which Literally, was it was <laughs> another winemaker said, "You know, you're crazy. This is what you like. Let me introduce you to okay. someone who's equally as passionate." That's wonderful. Well, the shields are great, and I know their their uh, daughter Carrie, uh, UC Davis grad. She's making some phenomenal wine, and um, we are very proud of the people. I mean, I am as a sommelier. When we recognize De Brule on the vineyard, um, that's that's really an honor and a privilege to have those grapes because the, there's a um, uh, a first growth mentality for that absolutely. property. Absolutely. And it's it's not a large vineyard. Every vine is manicured as if it were a, you know, a first growth Bordeaux. And so when you go out to that vineyard, you know, they know every single aspect of a hillside and how shallow the soils are. They, they tailor their farming to each specific vine, which is just, you know, not done in a mass, you know, produced fashion in some of the larger wineries. It just can't be done that way. Well, uh, we'll look forward to tasting that someday. you got three wines. Quickly tell me what you have. When we come back from this break, we'll dive into these three wines. Okay, I have three wines from three different vintages. So the first is a blend that I call Abbott's Table, a little nod to my uh, my Catholic upbringing. And it's a blend of, of Zin, and then uh, the next blend is uh, is a Bordeaux blend from our new estate. And finally, we'll end up with the original planting of Cabernet from Red Willow Vineyard. Awesome. Well, stick around, folks. We'll be right back on Happy Hour Radio. Speaking with David O'Reilly, he's got three fantastic wines. I'm certain. I know this, and I want you to uh, search them out. It's owenrow.com. So stick around. We'll be right back on Happy Hour Radio. Home of the Great One. Mark Levin. Weekdays 3 to 6 p.m. Talk Radio 570 KVI. KVI Want to Know Weekends. Time for another round of Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. All right, welcome back to Happy Hour Radio. Our final segment with uh, David O'Reilly, the winemaker for Owen Rowe, OwenRowe.com. Now, David, you've got three beautiful red wines here. You talked about Abbott's Tale, um, 2011 Abbott's Tale. This is the uh, 13th vintage. All right, the yes. 2013 Abbott's Tale. Tell us about this wine. So this is a, this is a blend that truly is crafted to be hedonistic. It's all about texture, fruit. It is a blend of five different grape varieties. So these are grapes not necessarily from the Yakima Valley. So the Zin, for example, is from the Gunkel Vineyard, which is in Mary Hill, one of the hottest areas in the entire state of Washington. So a Zin is a very uh, late ripening grape and really requires a lot of heat. So it's the ideal place for this grape. Uh, the, the blend also has Sangiovese from Red Willow, some Malbec from my estate at Union Gap, and then also some Blaufrankisch, some Lemberger that was planted uh, at the suggestion of Walter Clore at Red Willow Vineyard. And so it's all about being red-fruited, textural. You know, I just tell people I don't, you know, I don't write the, the the percentages on this label. This is all about just enjoy. Put it in a brown bag, 
pull the cork, <laughs> and just enjoy. <laughs> Head down to the Pike Place. Absolutely. <laughs> so, but well, I'm tasting it. Um, I love the Zinfandel, the spice. I like the Sangiovese. It gives you nice acidity. I think the Malbec gives you a little hint of dark fruit, which gives mm. you sort of this weightness, this foundation. Um, and then the Limburger, I think, gives you this this uh, smoky character, which makes it fun for uh, uh, the barbecue. And like, it's another thing. But it's very it's beautifully textured, elegant, um, voluptuous, but uh, not overbearing. So you can you can have two glasses and still get down to the cab. Oh, absolutely. Uh, this is will always be borderline upper 13 to lower 14% alcohol. And price on this one, Abbott's Tale? It's right around uh, in the low 20s. Perfect. Next wine is? So the next wine is what we call our Union Gap blend. When I was uh, starting uh, my first label from Yakima Valley years ago, I had a winemaker say, you know, I'll give you two pieces of advice. Don't put Yakima Valley on the label because people <laughs> didn't understand Yakima at the time. And don't just call it a red wine. So this is a Yakima Valley red wine. And uh, I've, <laughs> I've never been known Springs. to, uh, you know, to uh, listen to a lot of people. But this is all about the area. This is uh, an estate-grown wine. It's uh, We call it the Union Gap red wine. It is a right bank blend. So in the right bank of Bordeaux. Uh, some of the earlier ripening grape varieties do very, very well. So is this, this a 12? Is, this is an 11. 11. So the acidity here is not as bright as I would expect from 2011. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, a testament to your able to texture and blend the wine. Um, it's it's very complex, but it's just uh, this velvet tannin. Um, yes. A, a silky texture. Uh, it's delicious. What does this run? Uh, so this, this is uh, about $70 a bottle. Love it. And you'll pour me a glass of the final wine. And uh, um, com has a list of all of your wines. And you offer, obviously, uh, Oregon wines and Washington wines. But quickly, let's talk about the final wine from Owen Rowe. So the last wine here is the original planting at Red Willow Vineyard. I am really um, fortunate, honored to be working with the Sour family at Red Willow. When uh, I had started working with these grapes in 2006, um, you know, I was in a couple of the younger blocks, and I had asked Mike, what do I need to do to get some of those old vines? And he said, someone would have to die. <laughs> and so I told no. Mike, I said, you know, I'm from Belfast, and I could uh, I could uh, facilitate that. Yes. <laughs> and so uh, like eventually cows. we got some of this fruit, and that was, you know, some of those original uh, grapes that I had uh, tasted from David Lake back in 1983. Awesome. So this was planted in 1973. You tasted it 10 years later, per se, and you got your fruit in what year? I started working with uh, Red Willow in 2006. Uh, and this vintage of the... Oh, and this is the 2012. Wow. 2012 is a masterpiece. It it's is a, a masterpiece. great vintage. It's you know, not overly hot, not cool, very, made very balanced wines. Uh, this is really textural. I love that it's 100% Cabernet Sauvignon, so you get that cassis, natural acidity. This wine is all about balance and elegance. It is totally, it's amazing. Um, I, I haven't had a chance to taste your wines enough. I'm so pleased that you're here. Uh, this is called the what again? This is called uh, Red Willow Vineyard 1973 Block Cabernet oh, Sauvignon. And this runs? About $70. Wow, and it's worth it because this tastes like 2012 Bordeaux to me. Thank you. It's got everything. Well, David O'Reilly, what a treat. A pleasure to have you on Happy Hour Radio. We can find your wines at owenrow.com and, uh, of course, our friends at Esquin and probably McCarthy and Shearing. McCarthy and Shearing, and you can find them at 
West Seattle Cellars. Oh, we great. Are, you can just go around town, and there's many fine know, wine shops. They know how to get they our know wine. good wine. Well, Absolutely. David, I thank you so much. And Ron Holden, um, this book is so fun. Homegrown Seattle, available on Amazon.com. Um, I look forward to the next edition to keep us all informed on what's happening in a culinary area. Uh, me too. Excellent. <laughs> Thanks you so much. Hey, folks, next week I've got uh, two fantastic people. i got Chef Jason Wilson from Miller's Guild and Crush. We're going to talk about Miller's Guild's uh, Butcher Block Sunday. Days and also um, a young lady named Julian Perry. She's got one night only events. Uh, it's happy hour radio weeknights. Uh, sorry, uh, weekend Saturday at six o'clock. I'm having too much fun. Uh, remember, folks, life is always better with a designated driver. Cheers. Cheers.